welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We return to our uh, verse-by-verse study of Colossians today, and we begin chapter 3. And so, as we stand, we do so, do so in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. And together, let us hear the Word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's majestic word. It has the depths of Christ to reveal to us. May the Spirit indeed show us Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Well, we are returning to Colossians, and uh, it's interesting timing uh, because we're returning right at the turn of the new year. And uh, boy, what a year we're leaving. Kind of makes you a little suspicious of the next one. Maybe you saw that sign in our community that said, before I accept or agree to 2022, I want to see some terms and conditions. I thought... <laughs> That's a great one. I agree. You know, I mean, it's we, we know the Lord knows and has it all planned. But boy, it's been a, quite a year. We thought this last year would be a year of settling or change or quieting down in regard to the pandemic and all its complications. But it got worse. And all the complications seem to enter more into our lives in every dimension, particularly the workplace. A lot of difficulty and strains. A lot of problems related to the COVID experience, regardless of how you feel about the disease itself. It's, it's the ramifications that have touched all of our lives unavoidably. I don't know about you, but it's created a, a real sense of being distracted. What's next or how to adjust or, or how do we uh, make our way through some of the changes? And when distraction comes in my life, it's followed by diminished spiritual focus. I'm able to, to give less time to the Lord because my rhythms are, are interrupted, my tolerances are, are lessened, and I've got more to handle. Like I said a few weeks ago, it seems now it takes 25% more effort just to do the basics in life. And so distraction has created a diminished spiritual focus. I admit to that in my life. I find it interesting that the Colossians, in their own way, were experiencing something of the same thing. They were undergoing a different kind of pandemic. It was the pandemic of false teaching. 
You know that the book was written to do two things. Colossians was written to exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ and to confront heresies. So he thinks supremacy and heresy, and you've got the dual purposes of the book. And the Colossian church was undergoing an unexpected pandemic of false teaching that had invaded that church. Individuals were tearing down the greatness of Christ and the sufficiency of what he'd done on that cross for those Christians. And they were also introducing new ideas and heresies, different things they now had to practice in their lives if they wanted to be fully accepted by God. So into that environment, Paul sends this letter, and he spends the first two chapters that we've just completed exalting the supremacy of Christ so that no mistake is made about his sufficiency. Key verse, and that was chapter 1 predominantly, key verse in the chapter we saw was Colossians 1.15, where Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You don't need anything but him. And then the second chapter was devoted to attacking the heresies, the legalism that was introduced into the lives of these Christians to tear down the grace of God. And also the dreams and visions, the added experiences these false teachers said that these Colossians needed to have before they really knew the Lord. And Paul took all of that apart in chapter 2, key verse, verse 8 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we've gone through all of that marvelous teaching and warning about false teaching. See, the false teachers at Colossae had attacked both the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. They'd made him less than fully God and had attempted to seduce those believers into thinking that genuine spirituality was found in obtaining more secret knowledge that only the false teachers had, keeping more rules that only the false teachers had, and having more experiences that only the false teachers could lead you into. And so two full chapters of Paul exalting the fact that Jesus Christ is fully God and he should in Christ. Ephesians is the same way. The scripture seems to tell us that what we believe about who Jesus is and who we are in him is the launch pad to live for him. And the Colossians is, is, is built in exactly the same way. Now, as you look into this book, like I said, you're going to find a lot of practical dimensions to some things that may be aggravating in your life. A lot of dimensions in our life really do resist change. But when you get to Colossians 3, you're going to be walking on some extremely valuable divine real estate. For the next few weeks or months, we're going to be going through some marvelous insights about how to work change into some of the things that are most difficult for Christians. And I'm not exaggerating how powerful it can be. I mean, right now, if you're fighting a, ba a private battle of sexual lust, dealing with pornography in your life and just trapped in a life of sensuality. Even as a believer, we're going to get into that. Verses 5 to 7 and onward, talk about how that issue can be confronted in your life as your new identity in Christ takes hold. If you're battling material goals in your life and materialism is taking over too big a part of your life, workaholism, careerism, and you're trying to find a balance in your life, he'll talk about that. He'll talk about the fact that there is a, a, an, a place to understand how covetousness can control your life, and he'll talk about how to deal with that. 
If you're dealing with anger and grudge holding and maybe bitterness, not only in your home, but maybe with other fellow Christians in the body of Christ. Oh, he has a whole sweet beginning of verse 12 about how we can walk in forgiveness and restoration in that domain. Don't we need that in this day and age in Christ with the church so caught up in contention? If you've dealt with with whole, whole issues in your marriage relationship, your family dynamics that are very tense and difficult, relationships with your spouse, relationships with your children. He moves into all of that in verses 18 and onward, talking about how the new life in Christ can transform that. And he even gets down to the nitty-gritty of the 9-to-5 working environment. Boy, that's changed so dramatically in our time. And we're living under greater pressures than ever in Christians about how to reflect Christ, but still be a submissive, still having finding the golden line of how to live for Him in a very changed work culture. The Word of God has words for you in the weeks to come. So, All of this is going to be kind of unearthed, just kind of one shovelful, and you'll turn over a diamond of insight, one after the other, as we go through this marvelous section of the epistle. Today, however, all of that change starts with getting your heart and mind focused on God. You cannot exert and experience personal change unless the devotion of your life is centered on who God is and who you are in Christ. It begins with worship. It begins with the truth of the Word. It begins with setting your mind on Him. And that's what this section of Scripture is all about. Seeking the things above and setting your mind on the things of God. So I've tried to set the stage for you. And we're going to talk today about how he begins this whole process, how to rekindle your spiritual passion. There are four learning points that the text brings out, and I'll just preach them all the way through, God willing. The first is this. He begins by stating, listen, if you want to rekindle your spiritual passion, you got to start by remembering your spiritual birthright. Take a look at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Greek language is interesting. The if there, there's a lot of different ways that Greek can communicate that. This is what they call a first-class condition, and it means since. It it assumes that it's true. He's basically saying, listen, since you've been raised with Christ, since you're new people in Christ, you can have and you should have a new focus in your life. You have a spiritual birthright. You've been born into a new life, as was read to us in our scripture earlier today. And that means you have a whole new future that is your privilege. You've got a spiritual birthright. What's a birthright? Look, in the dictionary, it's defined this way. It's a privilege to which a person is entitled by birth. Examples would be citizenship and all the privileges that come from that. Or maybe the fact that you were born into a family and there's an inheritance that will come only to those who can show their birthright. It's a privilege to which a person is entitled by birth. Here, he says, because you've been born into the family of God, born again again, and given a new spiritual nature, you have the right to a rich and growing spiritual life. Oh, if I could drill this into the minds of so many Christians today who really don't understand that they're any different now that they have trusted Christ than they were before. They, they simply think their eternity is secured, but their daily life is, is not going to be altered because they're not different people until suddenly in that moment when they get to heaven, they'll be made different then. No, the Bible says, oh, you've been made different now. 
You've been given a spiritual birthright. You've been born into a new kingdom and you've received a new nature. When you became a Christian, the Bible says, and Paul is referring to that here, when you became a Christian, spiritually you died to an old life and you were raised to a new one. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. So he takes a look back at something very important that happened to us. If you don't understand this, the depth and, uh, of, of how you're going to walk into transformation in your Christian life is going to be stunted. That's why he goes back and reminds them of this fundamental understanding. So he takes a look back at the new birth, and he talks about four different things under this. Remembering your spiritual birthright. There's four things you need to understand. Number one, he teaches here that you underwent a spiritual transformation when you trusted Jesus Christ. You underwent a transformation invisibly in who you are. The Bible says three things. When you trusted Christ, you were baptized into Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says you were baptized, all of us, into the body of Christ. You became one with him. You were placed into him spiritually. You may not have felt any different. People not have, may not have seen anything happen. There was no flash of light, but there was a flash of change in God's eyes. You were placed into his son. And consequently, whatever happened to his son happened to you. Not only were you baptized and placed into Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, but, when, but you were also buried and made alive in Christ. The cross work experience of Jesus Christ and the resurrection he went through are something that you also participated in. You say that's a mystery. How do you understand that? You'll never understand it till you get to the other side. You take it by faith because you were in Christ. When he died, you died. When he, because you are in Christ, when he rose, you rose to a new life. The Bible says you were baptized into Christ, you were buried with Christ, and made alive with Christ. He's already referred to this in the book, you remember this, in chapter 2. Go back to verse 12. He's talking to them about resisting all this false teaching. And he says, you've been buried with him in baptism, verse 12 of Colossians 2, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Remember, I taught you that that means that when you came to Christ, not only did you have all your sin, past, present, and future forgiven, but in some mysterious way, God gave you a new nature. He, he defeated the, the, the overwhelming power of sin in your life. He killed it and buried it. And he also gave you a new nature, it says, that, that gives you the power to say yes to God now and yes to what he wants in your daily life. Now, the Bible opens this up in many ways. The clearest is in Romans chapter 6. I want you to watch with me and go through that with me very quickly, but it's so important. Romans chapter 6, Paul makes the same argument, but he extends it. This is so critical. It takes you from trying the Christian life to living the Christian life. In Romans chapter 6, look at verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How did you die to sin? When Jesus Christ died on that cross and defeated sin, you died in that death with him. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that's what I just explained to you, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That means that the power that sin had over you, that overwhelming power that you couldn't resist in your non-Christian world and life, the moment you trusted Christ, the, the, the power of sin lost its grip. And you can now take a stand against sin, and you can actually look at the last phrase of verse 4, walk in newness of life, because you also have resurrection power in your new nature that allows you to pursue God, to seek God, and to serve God. So the whole tendency and direction of your life changes when you're born again. There's a whole difference to how you face sin. You undergo a spiritual transformation. Sin doesn't have the dominating power. You have now the ability to say no to it and to grow in righteousness and to, to, uh, to grow away from sin in your life. Am I talking about perfection? No, but I'm talking about direction. Am I talking about absolute perfection? No, I'm talking about the fact that the domination of sin is no longer an absolute issue in your life. You can say no to sin and yes to Christ. Your mind and your life can be wrapped up in new things. Look at verses 10 and 12 of Romans 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, look at this, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. There's a massive change that happened. It ought to reflect itself in where your heart goes in life and how you're beginning to live for him. Now, invisibly, in fact, some have pointed out that the fact of your salvation was a greater change than you'll experience at your death when you go to heaven. This will blow your mind. What happens to the Christian when they die and go to heaven? Uh, as one person has said, at, at your death, you're just going to experience some subtraction. You'll lose your, your sinful body and that sinful flesh, that tendency that's still a part of it throughout your Christian life. You'll lose that physical body and you're going to get a resurrection body. But the new nature you have in Christ that was placed into you when you were born again, the, the nature that loves God and wants to serve God, is just going to be set free to be all it wants to be in heaven because the flesh is no longer dragging it down and the devil's no longer there to tempt you and the world's no longer there to press you. It's a pretty awesome thing to think about. You underwent a spiritual transformation. You say, wow, this is... This is news to me. It's not how I'm living. Well, that's why you're hearing this preaching. It's so seldom taught. We teach, okay, salvation is, your future is guaranteed. Things will change when you see Jesus in heaven. But between now and then, you're, you're, killed, you're still kind of on your own, boss. Try to do better. But know that he forgives all that anyway. And one day, the real change happens when you go to heaven. That's not true. There's two sides to the cross. There's the salvation side that took care of all your sin, but there's the transformation side in which a dimension of you did die to sin and a dimension of you has now come alive to seek God and serve God. That's what the cross has accomplished. When does eternal life begin? The moment you die? No. The Bible says in 1 John 5 that we have life. My life with Christ started the moment he, he came to me and I was born again. 
And it just grows, as I understand it. While I'm really going now, I'm going to have to stop the details there. How do you rekindle your spiritual life? He says, go back to what, what, where you began. Remember your spiritual birthright. Four things. Number one, you underwent a spiritual transformation, a supernatural one. Number two, it's a powerful factor in battling personal temptation. Most of us, when we are tempted to sin in a moral area, a private area, a money area, whatever it is, we get, we get focused on trying to get victory over that sin and we focus on that sin. But who you are in Christ is where you should start. You shouldn't start with saying, oh, I know I shouldn't do that thing. You should start with saying, listen, I've been born again. I have a new heart now. I don't want to do that thing. That's not me anymore. It's dramatic what happens in your battles with sin when you start to remind yourself, listen, this is not just something I shouldn't do. If I know who I am in Christ, this is not something I'm really meant to do anymore. It's pretty dramatic in your quiet battle with sin when you look right at the tempter and he's battling you in that area again, and you just say to him, listen, that's not who I am anymore. It's just not who I am. It's not my identity now. And Christ, by his internal power, has given me resurrection life. And in this moment, I turn from that temptation. I stand in who I am. And I turn toward the thing that I know he does desire for me, that my heart really dogs for. And in that moment, I win that battle. It's a big difference. Who you are in Christ is where you got to start when you think about getting victory over sin. You don't even think about going there at certain points because you now know who you are. I've told you many times that in terms of battling temptation, the power to know is in a greater yes. And there's a dignity to saying, listen, that's beneath me now. That's not me now. That's not where my heart beats now. And I'm stepping away from it. I hope you see the distinction. I read a story this week about um, a couple uh, sisters, uh, not Catholic sisters, but they were just sisters, but they were partiers, big time. And they were into a party scene and alcohol and drugs and then everything else that comes out of that. For quite a while, they were kind of notorious among their social connections. And, uh, and then they both found Christ, same time. And they found new life in Christ. Somebody taught them who they were, that they had now died to that way of life and died to sin. And there was a new life and a new direction that they had. And, and they got a text to be invited to one of those parties. And uh, they sent a reply text with these words, sorry, we can't be there because we recently died. (laughs) I think that kind of illustrates it. Sorry, Satan, I really can't go there anymore because I recently died. You're not talking to the same old person. Thirdly, it's an absolute fact. Paul says, listen, since you were raised, and you've, you've been born into a new life. This is bedrock. And fourthly, it's a launch pad to really seeking and serving God. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have a new direction and a new focus in your life. You will seek the things of God. If you're not, we have another question to ask. At least to my, to my second of these four points. Second thing in rekindling your spiritual passion is refocus your spiritual passion. Look at verse 
the next phrase, since you've been raised with Christ, you've been made a new man and woman in Jesus. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It follows, doesn't it, that if you're a different person, you're going to have a different passion now. Doesn't that make sense? That's the whole point of that verse. Two things under this. It means being passionate about the things that are important in heaven, not here on earth. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This means being passionate about the things that are important in heaven, not the things that are important here on earth. Now, when he talks about the throne room of heaven and, 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 and seeking Christ, you don't have to be one of these people that's following online visions and dreams about people that get transported into the throne room or somebody that died for 20 minutes and said they went there. No, that's not what you need. He's talking here about the, the understanding of worship and the word that leads you into placing your mind on the things that are important in heaven. What's important in heaven right now? What's important? What are the angels conversing about? What are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit engaged with? What are all those that are there now worshiping Him over? I'll tell you a few things. What's important in heaven right now is God's person, who He is in His glorious, glorious, wondrous person. And that's how He's being worshipped there. Number two, God's glory. His glory is just compelling worship and filling heaven right now. Number three, Christ's work. He's ascended into heaven now, and he's at the right hand of God the Father because he came and did the mightiest work in the history of the universe, the cross work. And and what's also important is the worth that he is to receive for all that he did. He's receiving that right now. And finally, eternal truth is important, and the eternally lost are important. All of attentions, all the attention of heaven is on the glory of God and on God's work to still redeem more and more lost people before history meets its close. That's what's important in heaven. God's person, God's glory, Christ's work, Christ's worth, eternal truth, and the eternally lost. Now when he said, listen, you need to be seeking those things. Those are the things that are important in heaven. What are you doing dinking around with all this junk on earth? He's saying, get out of those distractions, believers, and begin to go where your life is. Oh, you got to have a mind that that is essentially focused on that. Back in Philippians, in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it's all because you actually have a whole new identity. Your actual citizenship and and focus should be in heaven, Philippians 3.19. People on this earth, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their glory, and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That's where your attention ought to be because you have citizenship in a different place. You're all wrapped up in all the domains of human human experience and, and human institutions, and they're all important, but that's not where your real life is anymore. You are a citizen of heaven. And so the dimension of where you're, you're putting your focus should be there. One author, I really put it, put it this way. So 
As Christians, we live in the heavenlies. Everything we love and everything we're part of is what's loved in heaven. Our Father is there. Our Savior is there. Our inheritance is there. Our home in the future is there. Our citizenship is there. Our reward that's coming is there. All the virtues we love are heavenly virtues if we're walking with the Lord. All the truths we love are heavenly truths. All the enterprises we want to engage in are heavenly enterprises. This is a life that is consumed with focusing on what is heavenly, what is eternal, and that means it's focused on Christ, who's the embodiment of all of that. Let your mind focus on the things in heaven. Because that's where you're a citizen and you're engaged there. Dr. A.T. Robertson, the old Greek scholar that I've loved all my life, Christian-wise, put it this way, the new life here means that the Christian is seeking heaven and thinking heaven. I thought that was cool. Seeking heaven and thinking heaven. His feet are on the earth, but his head is in the throne room. His head is, his mind is in the heavens. That is so powerful when you understand that's who you really are in Christ right now. With everything surging around you, everything changing around you in the three-dimensional world, all of that's going to continue to happen, and the Scripture says it's going to continue. Good news, to get worse. But everything that we're experiencing and fearing and everything else is nothing compared to real, real the true reality. And those that uh, have been taught through tribulation see it more clearly than we do. You think things are bad here with all we've gone through in the last two years. They are magnifications worse in most of the underdeveloped countries of the world. And the believers are moving through it. And I'll tell you what, the Spirit of God is moving around the world and many people are coming to Christ in many struggling nations and they're learning to worship. And some of their worship now is, is, is part of the experience you can have because of our internet world. You know, I, I, I like to listen to praise and worship. I like to watch it on video. And I'm finding myself watching less and less American praise and worship. Finding myself less and less watching any the, you know, in, in the video concerts and things I used to enjoy. And I'm drawn more and more to the videos of the church in the developing world worshiping. I've been watching the emerging church in Israel worshiping, and I've been so thrilled I've told you about that. I've been watching the church in India worship. They have a masterful ability because of how the gospel has moved in that country to sing the great old hymns of the faith with magnificent power. And so I watch those at night at the end of a day of battle. And when I know the night will be filled with battle and I fill myself with, with images of the believers in other countries worshiping God and their minds, their feet are on earth, but their minds and their hearts are in heaven. You can see it. Lately, I found the Egyptian church. There is an outburst of the gospel going on in Egypt right now. Tens and tens of thousands of Christians coming. You know, that's not a truly gospel-friendly country, of course. They uh, gather frequently at what they call the church in the desert. It's magnificent. You should go online and see it. It's, it's this gigantic uh, mountain structure with a cliff face, and a church has been built into the side of that cliff face, and the plane goes out so far that tens and tens of thousands of believers come, and they just stand there for hours in these worship nights. And there's a worship team and a choir on the stage, and they just worship back and forth 
it is electrifying. It's magnificent. They've written all their worship songs, and the worship just goes back and forth in waves of, of praise nonstop for hours. I do that because I want to see what it looks like for people to have their feet on earth, but their hearts in heaven. It's interesting when they focus on the believers as they pray. They have these sections of prayer where different people on the stage and the worship team just just come out in personal extemporaneous prayer. It's interesting. A lot of people in developing countries, they don't pray like you and I do. You know, we pray. We, well, what do we, how do we pray in America? Well, first of all, we bow our head and we close our eyes. And if we've really been well taught, we kind of do this. And then we pray in quiet tones. They're kind of churchy because we want to say the right thing. And so we, we think about what we say before we pray, and that's how we pray. That's okay. That's just kind of where we're at. That's, that's our history. But, you know, um, they don't pray that way in a lot of the developing countries. I saw this when I was in West Africa years ago when I was there visiting the persecuted church. You see it as the Egyptian church prays. It's amazing. They pray. Oh, no. They pray. By the way, do you know where we got the idea of heads bowed, eyes closed, and, and, and hands folded? That was only about 200 years ago from what I've read. When the Sunday school was started in the late 18th century by a guy named Robert Rakes, and Sunday school was a gathering in of a bunch of un, very poor, uneducated working kids that worked in the factories for seven, six days a week, and the only day they had off was Sunday. And it was an evangelistic attempt to bring all these kids into a room and teach them about Jesus and lead them to Christ. So Sunday school was originally kind of, you know, backyard Bible club. <laughs> and in order to keep all these unruly kids quiet, they decided to teach them, okay, kids, you need to bow your heads, close your eyes, and make your hands stay still. That's what people say that kind of came from. I don't know if that's an urban legend or not. But but you watch these people in these services pray. Oh, they pray with their eyes open. They pray with passion. And also they pray with their arms free. And they speak to God and they gesture to God and they're looking out to God. It's like there's no distance and they're praying with full hearts that just flow out and they're praying scripture as it flows out of their mouths and they're worshiping him and exalting him and they're talking about the things that heaven's talking about. They're praising him for his person, for his glory, for Christ's work, for Christ's worth, for the eternal truth that changed their lives and for the lost in their nations that need to come to Christ. This is how we pray. You want to refocus your spiritual passion. It means being passionate about the things that are important in heaven, not here on earth. Second under this is the surest sign that there is real spiritual life in you. He Paul says, since this has happened, in other words, if, this has, if you've experienced new life in Christ, if you've died to sin and been raised with Christ, if His Spirit now lives within you, if you have this new life drive in your life, you ought to be seeking the things that are above. It should be a sign of new life. What occupies your life should show what fills your heart. Is that true about you? What do you spend most of your time thinking about, believer? What preoccupies you? What irritates you? What exhilarates you? Where are your joys? and where are your disappointments located every day, every week, every month, every year of your life? Is it in this world? 
with its aggravations and also sometimes of its satisfactions, or is it, is it in the things that matter in heaven? I'll let you answer that question, but it is an important question. I've got to hurry now. Here's the last two. Thirdly, he says, you've got to remember your spiritual birthright. Second, you've got to refocus the passion of your life to where you're devoted to the things that matter to God. And thirdly, you've got to reset your mental focus. Get back to the text. Seeking the things that are above is where your heart passion is, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then he follows up with the second commandment. Set your minds on things that are on above. And here he's talking, he's going from, from the, the passion of your heart to the specifics of your mind. This is, your, this is what occupies the, the thought life and the beliefs in your life, day to day, hour to hour, four things under this. Number one, it is a constantly growing habit. The Greek here says, keep setting your minds on the things that are, on, that are of God. You've got to do it as a discipline. It's got to be a growing focus in your life. You've got to learn how to do it. Your new heart presses you to do it, and then you have to develop the disciplines to do this. And he says, listen, don't be distracted with these false teachers and all these problems in your world. You start setting your mind on the things of God. It's got to be a constantly growing habit. Secondly, it's a growing habit of seeking God through the Word and through worship. Like I said, how do you set your mind on the things that are above? It's not through some kind of weird transcendental uh you know, vision or experience. It's not some secret somebody on the internet can sell you. It's just being involved in the Word of God and the worship of God. It's that simple and it's that powerful. How do I know that? Because that's been the experience of all believers from all time. When they come into the Word of God, they come into the presence of God. When I open my Bible, I'm not studying an academic book. I'm getting ready to have an encounter with the living God. That's why I pray out of the Scriptures. Most of my prayer life is not lists, it's text, it's His truth. And as I pray that truth back to Him, I begin to encounter Him, and I'm setting my mind on who He is as the Scripture is part of my meditative life. Jeremiah the prophet had this experience back in Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. He says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. He had an encounter with God through the Word of God. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. That's a phrase, by the way, the God of is a phrase about God in heaven. God over all the angels in, in heaven. The word of God will lead you into the presence of God. It's how you set your mind on the things of God. It's that clear. Don't you remember the disciples back in, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had explained the Word of God about them, the risen Christ had met them on the road to Emmaus, and He opened up their minds to understand the Word of God, the Scripture says. He opened their eyes, and they saw everything about Jesus in the text as Jesus explained it. And they said to themselves in chapter, chapter 24 and verse 30, of Luke, it says, they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What was the greatest thing about their encounter with the risen Jesus? Was it seeing the resurrected Lord? No, they only saw him for a nanosecond when he opened their eyes. What caused their hearts to burn? The same word of God you have opened by the same Lord Jesus you have to reveal the same Lord Jesus you know. Can your heart burn with encounter and worship when you're in the Word of God? For crying out loud, I hope so. 
That's why I go to this book. I want to encounter him. And that's how you do it. You seek God through the word and then finally through worship. The word of God will lead you into deeper worship of God. And worship itself will take you in, in a certain way spiritually right into the throne room. David said it in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Here is a guy that had command over everything in the visible world that's so important to all of us. The one thing I've asked. This is, this is the focus of my life that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. That's pretty awesome. You can have that experience. Worship can be that spiritually real. The inner man through the inner mind responding to the truth of God. When we worshiped a few minutes ago, we weren't just singing, singing through words. We were, we were in the inner man responding through the inner mind to God. That's how this is. By the way, it's interesting, there was no temple in the time of David, was there? Mm -mm. Which temple is he talking about? That's my guess. So it's a constantly growing habit. you got to keep setting your mind. And it's a habit where, of, of seeking God through the Word and through worship. It's that simple, but that profound. Thirdly, it's, it's a habit that will put, put in perspective everything that this earthly life concerns. Go back to the text, and he says, as you do this, it's important to remember, verse 3, that you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What, what happens when you build a life through, powered by the Word and, and, and enshrouded in worship? Is he saying here, listen, set your mind on the things that are on, on, above and totally forget and, and, and minimize the things that are on earth? Some people will look at that text and say, well, for crying out loud, I just can't do it. I run a business. It's a 60-hour-a-week business. It's a problem-a-minute business. And it's what I do. If you're telling me that, that I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to be involved with the things in my earthly work, I'm not sure I can hit that hurdle. I can't be like you, Pastor. Pastor, you get paid all week long to do what that text says. And in part, you're right. But hey, I know what it's like to be out there as a Christian in the marketplace. I did it for years in the high-pressure environment of selling, meeting quotas, dealing with deadlines, making the mortgage. I understand all of that. And I understand what it's like to have to learn to build the dimension of worship and being in His presence into a work like that. And when I did it, everything else in the horizontal got better. Not, I'm not talking prosperity gospel here. No, the problems are still there. But how I lived through it, I lived through it with the presence of God. He's not talking about withdrawing from all your work. He's saying that as you're focusing on God, the work you are involved in this world and the relationships you're all involved in this world will be informed by a new set of values. You're going to be doing business from the throne room. You're going to be involved in, in client development and dealing with difficult and even crazy people in this particular time from the throne room. You're going to be dealing with financial shortfalls from the throne room. You're going to be looking at all of this from God's point of view. And I'm telling you, beloved, that changes everything. You died to a life where this was everything, is what he's saying. Focus on the Lord who's drawn you in a new reality, a higher reality, and 
And that will inform and allow you to glorify Him right where you are. And then lastly, not only is it a constantly growing habit of seeking God through the Word and through worship that will put in perspective everything that this earthly life concerns, but it will protect your heart from everything this earthly life contains. Uh, let's, let's just admit it. If you're a believer, if you're trying to walk with God today, the world is, is more dedicated to destroying and discouraging your faith than we've ever experienced. It's hard to be a Christian today. But the good news, he says in this text, is that your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Bible scholars look at that and they, they seem to believe that, that your real life is untouchable from the world because it's hidden with Christ in God. Your life in the Word of God, your life in the worship of God, your meditation in the presence of God, your belief system in the presence of God, the fact that eternity holds everything you're ever going to want anyway, all of that is where your real life is hidden, and that's untouchable by the wickedness and the pressures of the world. Aren't you glad? I don't know what 2022 is going to be like. There are no terms and conditions to it. Maybe a lot worse. Ultimately, that's important, but it's not ultimate because my life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where my re greater reality is, and that is absolutely secure. Here's the last. Remember your birthright. Refocus on a passion that for heaven. Reset your mental focus as a way of life. And lastly, realize your ultimate future. Go back to the passage and we close verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears... Then you also will appear with him in glory. The last part of this is very important because let's face it, the spiritual life, in the spiritual life, the real payoff is in the future. <laughs> and so will be the proof of it. What do I mean? He's talking here about the fact that if you focus on the things that are above, if your life, we live a life where your minds are focused on the things that are important to God and you live that in your life, if your true life is hidden with Christ in God and that's where your focus goes and that's where your real identity is and that's where your passions lie, no matter what happens to you, you're probably going to live a life of suffering, but you're also going to be living a life that is going to be misunderstood. Scholars also believe that when it says your life is hidden with Christ, another possible interpretation of that is that it's a mystery that people don't understand. They look at your life as a Christian. They look how much you live for worship. They, they are amazed at the break time when you're sitting there with that Bible stuck into your face again. They're, they're looking at all the, the, the progress in your business you turned down because you wanted to go on a mission trip for that summer or whatever it is. And they're saying, this is a total mystery to me. Why are you doing this to your life and your career? Because your life is hidden somewhere else. And the non-believing world doesn't understand it. Two things, and I wrap it up. The, under this, the heaven-focused life is a rich one, but it's also mocked and misunderstood. And we'll be mocked and misunderstood. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him because they're spiritually discerned. We're going to live a life that to most people makes no sense right up until the end, when Jesus comes back, verse 4. Here's the second. The heaven-focused life is a rich one, but it's also mocked and misunderstood. But when Christ returns, the worth of what we live for will be fully realized and greatly rewarded. What do I mean? Sometime in the future, if you die before Christ returns, there's a moment called the rapture, when you'll be raised from that grave, or if you're living at that time, he'll take you just as you are <laughs> and make you just as he is in a moment of time. 
Then we'll go to heaven during the final time of the seven years of tribulation on the earth as God's judgment begins to fall. We'll be in heaven. We'll be with him. And there will be something called the Bema Seat, the great reward ceremony for believers in heaven. And we'll receive our crowns for all the new life living we did. And then when God calls human history to its final judgment at the end of the tribulation years, Jesus Christ is going to come out of heaven visibly this time and we'll all come with him and we'll all break the skies together and we'll return and he will be returning in his glory. And it says, we also will appear with him in glory. We'll be coming back with him. And two things will happen at that moment. Number one, the value of what we live for is going to be realized by all the lost people. Everybody that mocked you, everybody that didn't understand your life, everybody that refused Jesus, in that final moment, time will be up, and they won't be able to turn to Christ. The Bible says when they see him on that day, the whole world will mourn because they'll realize these Christians really were right all along. They were living the life that really mattered, and now it's too late for me. But also, as you and I come back, We're going to be cherishing our reward. We'll be wearing crowns when we come back in His great glory, having received them in the the great Bema Seat ceremony. And Jesus will be with us as the nations are judged and all that terrible moment is finished. He'll look at us, His church, and say, Come on. Hey, the banquet's going to be starting in a bit. The wedding supper of the Lamb. i got a seat saved for you. And after that, in my millennial kingdom, my thousand-year reign before eternity really begins to roll, there's a place where you'll rule with me. I want to show you some things. Your ruling is about to start, and all your reward will come. Oh, when Christ, who is your life, appears, all of this will happen. That's worth everything. Colossians were living in a troubled time, and it had driven them to distraction spiritually. So are we. The Colossians needed to rekindle their spiritual passions. So do we. Let's do that. Oh, it is so full of reward as we do that. So full of reward. Second Corinthians 4 puts it all into a beautiful, beautiful understanding. Second Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart. We rekindle our spiritual passion year to year. Though our outer self, our body is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They are coming and going. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 